0: Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. All things being equal, by this point in high summer, the Democrats should have held their convention. Their presidential ticket, Joe Biden and running mate, would be on tour around the U.S. Political journalists would be ransacking their bag of clichés to maintain voter interest. But nothing is equal to anything that has happened in American lifetimes in this COVID-19 summer. The daily wash of the unbelievable makes it difficult to keep our bearings, to see the deep channel in the flow of events. In this podcast, I'm going to try and mark it out. In a little less than a hundred days, the most consequential American election since 1932 will take place. By any historical measure, the winner is a foregone conclusion, the Democratic Party's candidate, Joe Biden. By the measure of polls, President Donald Trump is in deep trouble. The big picture is this. Polls, conducted as recently as 10 days ago, show him 15 points behind Biden. In March, Biden's advantage was just two points, a statistical tie. At a more granular level, at this same point in the election campaign of 2016, Trump was leading in the suburbs, where presidential elections are won or lost, by 10 percentage points. Today, Biden leads by 9 points. That's a swing of 19 points. Now, polls are just snapshots. They can be inaccurate. They can change. But these polls echo historical precedent. Trump is running for re-election in the middle of a crisis like Herbert Hoover in 1932 as the Great Depression gripped the U.S., or Jimmy Carter in 1980 as the Iranian hostage crisis and inflation swept the country, and the first President Bush in 1992, who saw a national mood swing from the sugar high of sweeping Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait and then a deep recession and slow recovery, ruining the economic prospects of millions of American voters. All three men lost their re-election bids. Can anyone look at the uncontrolled surge of the coronavirus pandemic with its associated deaths, mass layoffs and shrinking economy, plus the civil unrest since the murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis policeman, and not see a national situation that is at least the equal of the crises that sank Hoover, Carter and Bush? And yet... It is a measure of just how norm-shattering, traumatic, and frankly bizarre Trump's years in office have been that virtually no one feels confident that the previous history is a guide to what will happen on November 3rd. Trump has shattered every rule and norm of presidential behavior in the last three and a half years. In a perverse form of political genius, he has used the tools of modern communications, especially social media platform Twitter, to get inside the collective American psyche. His tweets have shifted the entire national conversation onto Twitter, where facts are few and the character limit in tweets means snark and abuse and expressions of fear dominate. The press, playing by the old rules and norms of giving a president's statements credit for being factual, has been forced to repeat his lies and spend far too much time analyzing his tweets than reporting actual events happening. Here's an example of how deeply Trump has disrupted the status quo. Recently, reporters, granted one-to-one interviews, have been asking him if he loses on November 3rd, will he respect the result and leave office? That the question even has to be asked is shocking. This happened most recently in an interview with Fox News' Chris Wallace. The president's noncommittal answer was, he would have to see. Then Trump added, I'm not going to just say yes. I'm not going to just say no. He then went on to criticize yet again, voting by mail, something the Democrats want because of the pandemic. Trump said it would rig the election. People who live in those parts of the Middle East where democracy is a relatively recent phenomenon and where regime change via the ballot box is something to be questioned will be familiar with the tension of will the vote be fair, will the result be respected? In America, this tension is unprecedented. This has led to a kind of panic among opinion formers and leading academics. Yale University history professor Timothy Snyder, an expert on how societies are taken over by dictatorships, put up a 20-tweet thread on Twitter last week with advice on how to resist authoritarianism. It begins, Do not obey in advance. It ends, Be as courageous as you can. If none of us is prepared to die for freedom, then all of us will die under tyranny. Washington Post column Brian Klass, who has studied many contentious elections around the world, wrote last year, For many countries, elections don't involve just counting ballots, but also counting bodies. He then outlined his fears for the U.S. presidential election. The bulwarks that protect a country from political violence can be breached if the leader of that country dehumanizes certain groups of people, targets political opponents with venomous rhetoric, explicitly encourages violence, and then rejects the results of an election. Trump raises all four of those red flags. Neither Snyder nor class is anyone's idea of a radical. Their sense of alarm is a reflection of how deep the despair is in America as Election Day approaches. In recent weeks, it seems Trump and his advisers have been working hard to prevent the election taking place. His administration's approach to the pandemic is to let it surge. Last week set records for new cases— More than 144,000 have died. It also looks like he's trying to provoke some major act of violence that might allow him to try to cancel the election. The images of men from federal agencies in full combat gear but wearing no identification, snatching protesters from the streets of Portland, Oregon, and throwing them into unmarked vehicles, recall similar scenes in Chile and Argentina when democracy was suspended in those countries during the dirty wars of the 1970s. The scenes will certainly excite the 35-38% to 38% of Trump's unswayable support, but the rest of the country? The question is whether these actions will incite real violence in return. Every day it seems like a neck-and-neck neck race for America to make it to November 3rd as a functioning democracy. A few weeks ago, I was invited to a Zoom talk with former Democratic Senator Gary Hart. The talk focused on the many discretionary powers the presidency acquired during the Cold War and, more recently, the War on Terror. At least 100 that can be used at a president's discretion during times of national emergency, according to research by the Brennan Center at NYU School of Law. Their website is open, by the way, and you can find more details there. Hart is one of the two surviving members of the Church Committee, the congressional committee that investigated abuses by America's intelligence services, including the CIA and the FBI, during the 1970s. Hart knows the secret state as well as anyone. He minced no words. Trump can invoke some of these powers to forestall the election. This past week, the senator wrote an op-ed in the New York Times that summarized what he told us, and he cited one example, going all the way back to the Communications Act of 1934. The president can suspend broadcast stations and other means of communication following a proclamation of national emergency. He also reminded people of something Donald Trump said in March. I have the right to do a lot of things that people don't even know about. When looking at the scenes in Portland and reading of Trump's plan to send the same combat-ready federal militias to Chicago and other Democratic Party-controlled cities, it's hard not to think that those things that people don't know about are things he's considering using to forestall the election. And yet... There is a reality that is too easily overlooked in the Twitter-stoked paranoia gripping American political life. It's a reality I've covered as a journalist the last four years. First, Trump is really bad at the authoritarian thing. His wall isn't built. No one's free speech has been curtailed. I mean, I'm talking to you, right? Then the Democrats' polling momentum isn't because of Trump's inept handling of the pandemic. They already had momentum. I was in Washington, D.C. for Trump's inauguration in 2017. The day after, I was part of the crowd at the Million Women March. It was at least double the size that turned out on the mall to watch Trump take the oath of office. In the midterm elections of 2018 in suburban Atlanta, I recorded a group of women as they prepared to canvass their neighborhood on behalf of the Democratic candidate. They were upper-middle class. It was a very nice suburb. For the most part, in their 40s and 50s, many had professional qualifications, law degrees, and MBAs. Some had been on the Million Women March. Political activism was new to them. The work of those women in suburban Atlanta and similar groups across the country was instrumental in the Democrats taking control of the House of Representatives. In 2019's off-year elections, the same female-driven energy propelled the Democrats to victory in governor's contests in three southern states. Democrats won both houses of the Virginia legislature, an absolutely astonishing result. There is no reason to think that momentum has dissipated. Finally, there is this easily forgotten fact. In 2016, Hillary Clinton won the election by nearly 3 million votes. Trump was put into office by the archaic mechanism of the Electoral College. Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin provided Trump's winning margin in the Electoral College. And today's polls show Biden leading Trump in all three. So, to go back to the beginning, by any historical measure, if the vote is free and fair, and all the ballots counted— the Democratic candidate Joe Biden is on course to become the next president of the United States. The next hundred days will be a measure of how much Donald Trump's norm-shattering first term has upended historical precedent and set America down a path towards authoritarian rule. I'm not sure it has got that far, but I'm not willing to put money on it. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. I hope I marked the channel out clearly for you. Well, if not, come back again and go to the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. Listen to other things, and please make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.